You know, for most of my adult life, uh, or I should say most of my adult life, can be split into two categories. One category is uh, when I'm not allowing myself to eat any carbs, and the other category is when I'm eating every carb in sight. <laughs> and if I probably didn't do this one, I probably wouldn't need to do this one as much as I do. But I do love carbs and I love bread, and I was thinking to myself, who has the best bread in Syracuse? I know we could have quite a debate, uh, some disagreement over this, but I want to share with you three of my favorite places in Syracuse to get bread. And one of them is a place down in Armory Square called Pastabilities. And they have this bread that they're known for called their stretch bread. And this sauce right here, they call it their spicy hot tomato oil. This is a gift right from God's throne room to us, I believe. I love this sauce. If you've never tried this over some pasta or dipping your bread into it, it is a game changer. So I love possibilities. A classic, iconic Syracuse bakery, of course, is Columbus Bakery. I, I love Columbus Bakery. I love their flatbreads. I love these loaves. The funny little story, I didn't tell the first service. You, you guys are the only ones getting this. My mom, used to, my mom used to buy these loaves of bread, and now I'm going to tell on my mom. She's not here this morning. But when it comes to bread, she likes the soft inside. How many of you, you like the inside of the bread? Anybody in here? How many of you, you're crust people. You like the crust on the bread. So my, my mom is all about the inside of the bread. So she would buy, her and her dad would buy us a loaf of this. And we'd get home and we'd see it. It would look like it's perfect. It would be in this bag still, perfect shape. But what she would do on the way home is she would just reach into this thing and just keep pulling out the inside of the bread. So by the time we got home, it was this hollowed out loaf of bread. But we love Columbus Bakery. And another place, a little lesser known, is called Doloros. And Doloros is on the north side of the city. And they have amazing bread as well. They, they make these little, these little things called Delunas, which is like a calzone without the ricotta cheese. They also make calzones. I love it. I know, I know there's lots of other good ones. Harrison and Lincourt and Geddes. And this morning, actually, before church, I wanted to give a shout out to a local spot, so I went up to 31, and this is the Tuscan bread from Wegmans, which my girls are, have been waiting for and waiting for. They're like, when can we come take it from you? I said, after the second service. You've got to let me, let me use it. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. He says here, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And as we're in our series on the I Am statements of Jesus, this morning we come to this one. I am the bread of life. What does this mean? What did it mean back then? What does it mean today? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? And this morning as we study this passage in John chapter 6, we're going to see that when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, he was revealing to us two life-changing truths. And he was also providing us with one very serious, sobering warning. Okay? So that's how we're going to look at this together this morning. Two truths and one warning. And the first truth that Jesus says here when he says who I am is enough, or when he says I am the bread of life, is who I am is enough. Now John chapter 6 begins with an amazing story. If you go all the way back to the beginning of John chapter 6, you'll read about Jesus being on the mountain with his disciples, teaching thousands and thousands of people. The text says that there were 5,000 men, so some people believe with the women and the children, there might have been ten to 12,000 people there as Jesus is teaching. 
And Philip says, it's, it's, people are getting hungry. What are we going to do? And Jesus says to his disciples, well, look around. What do we have? And this little boy comes up with his lunch, and he's got five loaves and two fish. This is a pretty famous story. And Andrew says, here's what we have, but how far can this go among so many? I mean, five loaves and two fish and thousands of people. Somebody's going to get angry. And so Jesus says, tell him to sit down. And he, he breaks the bread, and he blesses it, and they begin to serve the people. And they keep serving, and they keep serving, and they serve everyone there until they've had everything they want, and then there's 12 baskets left over. So this is the way John chapter 6 starts. Jesus does this amazing miracle in front of maybe 10,000 people who benefit from it. And Jesus ends up leaving and going on a, across the water. He's on the other side of the water in a town called Capernaum. And I want you to see that the people come looking for Jesus, but Jesus knows why they're looking for him. Let's look at this together in verse 25. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, or teacher, why did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. You've come after me. You've chased after me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And so what Jesus says to the crowd is, you came not because of me, you came because of what you got from me. You're here for another handout. You're here for another meal. You liked the loaves, and you liked the fish. My youngest daughter, Maddie, who is six, has been up in the hospital for quite a while. She had surgery a few weeks ago, and she's been recovering. She's doing wonderful. Thank you for all your prayers and, and reaching out and caring for our family in this season. She's supposed to be discharged next Thursday on the 15th from the hospital, and we're really looking forward to that date. But one of the things that gets Maddie through her day, because she doesn't like a lot of what she has to do up there because the therapy is hard work, and, and she's bored, and she wants to come home, and she misses her sisters, and the food's not the best. Um, and so she, she says uh, she's always looking for presents and cards. That's her thing now. And so whenever I come into the room, because Erin and I will swap out, uh, whenever I come into the room, the first thing she looks at when I walk into the room is not my handsome face, <laughs> shocker, but it's my hands. She wants to see what did I bring her? What's in my hands? And last night I came in with a big Target bag that somebody had given us some stuff and another bag, and I set them on this separate bed, and, and she saw me set them on the bed, and then I went over to hug her and kiss her, and she wouldn't even look at my face. She's looking around me. She's trying to look over, and she's saying, Daddy, what's in the bag? What's in the bag? And I said to her, I'm here, Daddy. I'm the one that's here. And I said, isn't Daddy better than presents? And she said, nope. <laughs> These people were a lot like Maddie. They had in front of them the Son of God, the hope of the ages, the great I am, the bread of life. And they were looking for real bread, another meal. And the danger is that sometimes we go to Jesus not because of who he is, but because of what we think we can get from him. And when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, here's what he's saying to our hearts. Who I am is enough. You know, the crowd, I wonder what they were thinking that, that the previous day when they saw this begin to happen. Can you imagine being there that day and seeing the bread multiplied and the fish multiplied? And what would you have been thinking? What were they thinking? 
I would have been thinking, next time someone hand him ribeye and lobster, and, and then we'll have a real meal, right? But what, what was everybody thinking? And in fact, we know what they were thinking because it says they, be, they began to proclaim, surely this is the prophet, capital P, the prophet, the one. And Jesus leaves them because the text says he knew they wanted to force him to become king. As soon as they saw that, they had all this idea of who he was, but also, listen, what he could do for them. And it's still true today. People still go to Jesus not because of who he is. He's not actually enough for them. It's what they think he can do for them, what, he, what they think he can bring into their life. I wrote a list of some things that I think people today go to Jesus for. Some people go to Jesus, and they're happy to serve Jesus as long as their life is going well. As long as they're in health, and as long as there's wealth, or it doesn't even have to be divine health or extreme wealth, but as long as life is going the way they want it to go, they say, this is working out for me. I'm going to keep serving Jesus because I'm getting what I want out of it. Some people serve Jesus because they think it gives them influence and power, and for some people it does. It gives them a platform. It gives them a ministry. It gives them a voice. And so they use Jesus to build their platform to be heard and seen. For some people, they go to Jesus because what they really want is to feel superior to the people who don't follow Jesus. And so the fact that they're in church this morning and all those heathens out there aren't makes them feel superior. And they're just using Jesus to feel better than other people. Some people, it's the insider benefits. And for other people, it's the respect maybe that they feel like they'll get if they're a good person, if they're a moral person, if they're a religious person. And here's the danger. When you go to Jesus primarily for what you can get from him, you'll never get what you need most, which is him. When you go to Jesus primarily for what you can get from him, you'll never get what you actually need most, which is him. And this is what Jesus is trying to warn us about, that Jesus is saying to them, listen, I'm not a means to an end. I'm the end. <laughs> I'm an end in and of itself. I'm not a means to an end. I'm not useful. I'm beautiful. I'm the one who sustains you and satisfies you and takes away your hunger and your thirst. And of course, he's not speaking of physical hunger and physical thirst, is he? He's speaking of that spiritual, insatiable thirst that we all have for one more high, for one more experience, for one more accomplishment, for one more smile, for one more person to say something good about us. That insatiable thirst. And Jesus says, if you believe in me, that thirst can be satisfied. And the question before is this morning, before we go to the second point, is this. Is Jesus truly enough? If you lost everything that comes with serving him, would he alone be enough? Job said in chapter 13, verse 15, he said, Though he slay me, still I will hope in him. If he takes everything from me, if I lose everything, he is enough. See, if, Jesus, if who Jesus is isn't enough, you'll never be satisfied with anything else. Nothing else will be. If who Jesus is isn't enough for you, then listen to this. Hard times, loss, grief, sorrow, suffering, chaos, it will, your faith will unravel. You cannot keep your faith together in hard times when Jesus is only a means to an end for you. And if who Jesus is isn't enough, then my guess is maybe you haven't really seen him yet. Maybe you don't know how good he is. So Jesus is saying, who I am is enough. But the other thing that he tells us here, here's the second truth, is that what I have done, not just who I am, but what I have done is enough. Look at verse 28. As soon as he talks about this bread, it's interesting. The crowd's response is, what must we do? That's human nature. How do we earn it? 
What do we do? What are the works of God to do? Give us a list of things to do and we'll do it so that we can have this bread that takes away our hunger and we can have this access that will take away our thirst. Give me something to do. How many of you are achievers? You want a list of things to do. And if you have a list in front of you, you get so much joy out of checking that list off. And just at the end of the day, it's like, there it is. I did it all. And even if you're not a list maker, there's something in our nature that says, if you give me something to do, give me a way to prove myself, give me a way to earn this, I'll show up. And I'll do it. And Jesus blows the paradigm here in verse 29. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. The work to do is not a work at all. It's a heart change. It's a belief in Jesus. And even the faith that we exercise in Christ is a gift from God. So it's not ultimately a work at all. It's a receiving of the grace of God. And then through that, we express our faith in Jesus Christ. About 800 years before this story, there was a Syrian general who was wealthy, powerful, and successful. And then one day he received a death sentence. And everything in his life didn't mean anything anymore. He found out he had leprosy. Leprosy is the sort of sickness back then that meant uh, physical death, social death. You couldn't be around other people anymore. It was viewed as spiritual death, often viewed as judgment, divine judgment when you, received, when you had leprosy. And this man felt like he had no future, he had no hope, and he was a Syrian general, and everything he had worked for now didn't mean anything. But he had a servant girl who he had captured in one of his raids of the Jewish people, and she knew about a prophet in, in Israel. His name was Elisha. And she said, this man can, might be able to do something. And so this Syrian general, whose name was Naaman, he gets all his stuff together, he gets, all, he gets all his wealth, all his impressive, uh, you know, his resume, his, all of his possessions. He puts together this, this whole um, caravan, and he goes off to Israel. And he finds Elisha. And he's basically, Naaman's thing is, what's the work I need to do to get my healing? And so he wants to buy it. And Elisha doesn't even come to the door to talk to him, which would have been totally proper protocol for a man of this general's standing. Instead, he sends his servant Gehazi to the door, and Gehazi says, hey, I got a message for you from Elisha. And he just said, you know, that river you just walked by, that dirty river over there, just go washing it seven times. And he's so angry. And he's so angry because he was ready to do anything. In my favorite children's Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones, the author, says it this way. She says, all Naaman needed was nothing. And it was the one thing he didn't have. All Naaman needed was nothing. And it was the one thing he didn't have. And to come to Christ, all you need is nothing. But it's the one thing most people don't have. They're unwilling to admit, to say, I bring nothing to this but my sin and my mess and my need for the bread of life. And Jesus is saying here, don't worry about your works. What I have done is enough. We want to do a work, though. I thought of three reasons why we want to do a work. Let me share them with you quick. The first reason why we want a work to do is because, number one, it puts us in charge, right? Give me something to do, and it puts me in charge, and it puts me in control, and we all love to be in control, and we'd love to be in control of our eternal destination and our standing before God and our salvation, so give me a work to do. Another reason why we want a work to do is because it draws a line between us and all those other people who haven't done the work that we've done. 
We've put in the work. They haven't put in the work. That's why God blesses us and not them. That's why we're going to go to heaven and they aren't going to. And so we want to work to do because it puts us in charge. It draws a line. And then lastly, it actually, this is maybe the most subtle of the things that it does. It limits God. And here's what I mean. If you and I have done a work to earn our salvation, then there's a limitation to what God can ask of us because we did our part and he sort of owes us for doing our part. And Jesus is saying here, I am the bread of life. The only work you have to do is to exercise the faith in me that the Father gives you. And in doing so, you'll find that I'll satisfy your thirst and I'll take away your hunger. And, and, and I just want to pause and say, it's so important that as many, most of you are disciples, you're following Jesus. Be careful about how easy it is for us to add work to salvation. How subtle it is. How, how dangerous it is. How easy it is to miss this. What do I mean by work? Work can literally be any action, anything you do, any activity, but more than that. I was thinking about this this week. Your work could be an alliance or an affiliation. In other words, because I'm a part of, and this happens sometimes even with churches and denominations. So it's not enough to place your faith in Jesus. you got to be a part of this type of church. And you got to go to this sort of service. And you got to worship on this day. Or it's broader than that, right? It's, it can be political. It can be social. If you vote this way, if you do this, then you're a real Christian. And when somebody starts adding anything to the phrase, then you're a real Christian, other than have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, you're slipping into what these people were here. What's the work I can do? Who can I join up with so that I know I'm a real Christian. Real Christians know that what Jesus has done is enough. It's enough. And we join ourselves to him. And we place our hope in that union, not in our union with others. And so the crowd now says to Jesus, all right, you want us to believe in you? Look at this. In verse 30, he says, they say, give us a sign. What are you going to do so that we can see and believe? What work will you perform? And then they reference something from the Old Testament where God sent manna from heaven to the Israelites to feed them in the wilderness. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's speaking of himself. In verse 34, they say, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now listen, the manna was a wonderful thing, but there's a big difference between the manna of the Old Testament, the bread of the Old Testament, and Jesus, the bread of life. Let me give you some comparisons here. Manna met a physical need temporarily, but Jesus, the bread of life, he meets a spiritual need eternally. Manna only sustained physical life, but Jesus imparts eternal life. Manna was for one nation, Israel. Jesus is for all nations. Manna was only for 38 years, but Jesus comes for all eternity, from eternity past to eternity future. Manna cost the Lord nothing, but Jesus, to become the bread of life, it cost him everything. Manna only delayed physical death, but Jesus conquered all death. And manna was a gift from God, but Jesus, the bread of life, he's the giver of all good gifts. Who he is and what he's done is enough. And then Jesus ends and we'll end, with a sobering warning. And uh, this is found in the rest of this chapter. Jesus shifts to the language. Uh, he begins to, he, he kind of creeps the crowd out, if I'm honest. <laughs> he, 
he starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And I almost entitled this sermon, How to Shrink a Church. <laughs> because at the beginning of John 6, Jesus has 10,000 people, right, sitting at his feet. At the end of John 6, it's the 12 again. <laughs> and, and I can't imagine these ambitious guys, Peter, James, and John, are like, Jesus, you, we almost had it. <laughs> we almost had all the clout and all the influence that we thought we should have, and then you had to go and sound like a cannibal. Uh, <laughs> Jesus shifts to this, this disturbing language about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And the reason why he does this is, is because he's trying to point out the level of intimacy, connectedness, and oneness that is needed and offered in Christ, and that it's actually beyond anything we would imagine or probably choose on our own. Let's look at this, and, and, and we'll make, I'll make a final point and we'll close. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, see, he's driving this home. He's pushing in on this. He's the, can you imagine the tension and the awkwardness in the crowd as he's just, he won't back off of it. And his disciples are off to the side probably going, all right, we, I think we got it. I think we got it. You can let it go. But he won't let it go. Whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. What's the warning? Have you ever heard the saying, never trust a skinny chef? <laughs> now, I've watched enough food, food Network to know there's lots of skinny chefs who are really, really good. So it's not really true. But I think the point is, is, is interesting, right? The point is well taken. And the point is simply this. If you're so good at what you do, why do you look the way that you look? Why aren't you enjoying your own cooking? And Tim Elmore, in his uh, book on Habitudes, he tells this story about the starving baker. And it's this little parable. And he talks about this baker who works in this town who makes amazing baked goods. Amazing, you know, like, like take Possibilities and Deloros and Harrisons and, 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 and put them all together and get us and, and there you have it. And people come from all over to get his bread. But they begin to notice something day by day every time they go there. This guy is getting skinnier and skinnier and skinnier and he's wasting away until one day he dies. Because he's starved to death. And the point being is that he's so surrounded by it all, and he's doing it for everybody else, but he's not feeding himself. Jesus is trying to teach us something really, here, really important here about bread. And here's what he's saying. Like bread, I can do you no good from the outside. I can do you no good from a distance. Listen, a person can study bread. A person can write about bread. A person can teach about bread, admire bread, draw pictures of, of bread, take pictures of bread. A person can even work in a bakery. But until the bread gets in them, the true purpose and the greatest benefits of the bread are not realized and they've not been received. Did you hear that? Until the bread gets in them, then the true purpose and the greatest benefits of the bread are not realized and they are not received. And here's the question before us this morning. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And here's the question. Is he in you? You can go to church every Sunday. You can read your Bible. You can be an expert on Jesus. 
You can study Jesus. You can read about Jesus. You can talk to other people about Jesus. You can paint pictures of Jesus. You can write poems about Jesus. But until you eat his flesh, you take him into you. You make him, and when that bread gets into the human body, what does it do? It begins to just feed the entire body. Until he's in you, he won't do for you what he came to do, which is give you eternal life. Earlier in the chapter, when Andrew got the five loaves and the two fish, he brought them to Jesus and he said, but how far can this go? What good can this do among so many? You get to the end of the chapter and you look at Jesus and you have to ask the same question about him, the bread of life. What good can one man do for so many? So many hungry souls. You know them. They're in your family. They're in your neighborhoods. You work with them. Students, you go to school with them. So many hungry souls. So many thirsty souls. What good can one man do? How far can Jesus go? And the answer is this, who he is, is enough for everyone. And what he's done is enough for everyone. He's the bread of life who came from heaven to satisfy our souls. He's enough. Let's pray together this morning.